you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series one episode at a time. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror... Dimension 404 and the Jordan Peele produced Twilight Zone reboot on CBS All Access in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as full episode archives at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. So today on the show, I'll be discussing the Rip Van Winkle caper. It's the 24th episode of the Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally aired on April 21st, 1961. And I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief spoiler-free review of science fiction theater's sixth episode of its first season, titled Stranger in the Desert, which actually has a pretty unique uh, connection to this episode of the Twilight Zone as well. So look forward to that. Um, uh, before I get into my review, though, I do have some housekeeping to attend to. First of all, I just want to mention, I posted this on the Facebook page and on Twitter, that the podcast uh, just recently hit a really cool milestone in the kind of all-time downloads stat. Um, and I do, I'm not going to reveal what it is or anything, but basically it was just a cool, a cool milestone for it to hit in terms of total downloads. And I just want to take the, take a moment to just say thank you to everyone listening to this who's supporting the podcast just by listening to it, supporting it on Patreon also at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And, uh, just anyone who's putting up with me listening to, <laughs> putting up with me talking to, to the void about the Twilight Zone and, uh, somewhat obscure science fiction, um, storytelling in and back in the 50s and 60s um just seriously i can't express how much i appreciate your guys's uh listening to me and um it's just really cool it's funny because i mean i started the podcast in 2015 and it was uh two years into uh the obsessive viewer podcast which is when my main podcast that i do and uh I just started this one just out of boredom, out of boredom, out of depression, out of just uh not uh, out of wanting to do more podcasting, uh kind of just uh, uh to just throw myself into more podcasting basically. And I just kind of picked the Twilight Zone because I'd never seen it and it has completely changed my life in certain ways and has changed my the way like Honestly, it's changed the my approach to podcasting, my approach to media, like the way that I watch shows and movies now is very much enhanced by just the way that I've been watching them uh, for this podcast. So anyway, uh, once again, just seriously, cannot thank you guys enough. And I have no intention of stopping uh, like ever. So hopefully you guys uh, don't get sick of me. 
Um, yeah, so thank you again and uh, enjoy the rest of my life of podcasting. Um, that's weird. So uh, other piece of housekeeping I have is I, that last week on the podcast when I was reviewing um, 100 Yards Over the Rim, I did misspeak um, and I accidentally referred to the Ballad of Buster Scruggs as the Battle of Buster Scruggs. Um, I caught that in the edit. I had it listed the right way in my notes and everything and I, I saw it when I was editing it and I was like, I don't feel like... Some like sometimes I'll correct something and kind of add it in post. Like I'll say like "oh ballad" and then cut that and put that in the in the episode. It's rare that I do that. I kind of just let my errors live the way they they are. But this is a small one. I could have done it, but I was just like I don't really feel like doing that. So figured I'd address it here so that uh, you guys know that I'm not a complete idiot. Um, so the final piece of housekeeping I have. Um, is that I just recently bought Mark Neese's graphic novel adaptation of Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? Um, it's, uh, the, the next episode in the, uh, there, there were eight adaptations of, in graphic novel format. I talked about the Odyssey of Flight 33, I think, in last episode. And Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up is the next one in terms of the next episode of the podcast or the episode of the twilight zone that i have coming up so i went ahead and bought that expect my review of it when i review the that episode on the podcast here in a few weeks and uh if you want to check out that graphic novel i'll put a link in the show notes um when i put amazon links in the show notes those are just so you guys know those are affiliate links so if you do decide to buy them and this goes for the complete series dvd set and blu-ray set links um those are affiliate links so if you do decide to buy them, just go ahead and click those links and I'll like Amazon will give me like a little piece of the action. Um, a little, uh, a little, uh, cut of their profit and their on that sale. So that's another way to kind of help support, uh, the show. Um, okay. So that's housekeeping and I do have some pre-review notes. Um, so I guess this is still kind of housekeeping. I don't know. Anyway, um, I just recently listened kind of on a whim, I listened to um, some of the audiobook of Richard Matheson's 20, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet um, collection. So I listened to two stories in that collection. I just kind of want to give my broad thoughts on that. The first one I listened to was Nightmare at, uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. And uh, this, this was my way of kind of cheating because when I do the season in review episode of uh, the new Twilight Zone, I, I have a section where I'm going to kind of, um, pitch to Tiny, who I'm hopefully going to have on for that episode. I'm going to pitch him some original series episodes to kind of complement the new series, uh, episodes. And obviously with Nightmare at 30,000 feet, the, the next, the one to kind of pitch him is Nightmare at 20,000 feet. And since that is way in the future of the Twilight Zone and I don't watch ahead, um, I figured I'd cheat and just listen to the, uh, short story on Audible. <laughs> um, and just a couple of notes about that. Like, this was my first time reading or listening to Richard Matheson. It was my first, um, introduction to his writing, really. And it's, it's kind of possible that I've just read too much Stephen King and not enough from different authors recently, but I can absolutely see the inspiration that King drew from Matheson. Like, uh, Stephen King has said that Richard Matheson is one of his favorite, uh, authors and, and writers, and he got a lot of inspiration from him, but I see a lot of parallels with King's writing and, uh, Richard Matheson's. 
which makes me excited because that makes me even more excited to check out more of Matheson's work. Um, as for Nightmare 20,000 Feet, I thought it was really compelling and uh, specifically because it's entirely from the main character's perspective and we're with it through with him throughout it. And it's just it's such a unique story and such a cool experience. And I can't wait to get to that episode of the Twilight Zone and that segment in the movie as well. It's just it's such a cool story. Um, I highly recommend checking that out. Um, the next one that I listened to was Disappearing Act, which was the basis for the season one episode and when the sky was opened. Um, in the story, the, a man is finding that people in his life are disappearing. And this was kind of somewhat similar to, um, I guess, I guess you would say, and when the sky was open was kind of, um, an interesting correlation between that episode and, the new series comedian episode. But anyway, um, I really liked the writing of disappearing act. Um, it's kind of told in, in, <laughs> I have, I don't know if I've ever really said this word out loud, but an epistolar, uh, an epistolary, uh, storytelling technique. So it's all like through journal entries and diary entries. And it's a very interesting escalation of tension there. Cause it's about a man who has people in his life who are disappearing and he doesn't know how to, uh, react. He's, he's panicking. And again, it's kind of goes into what I said about Nightmare at 20,000 feet, that it's very much a, um, story from the perspective of the protagonist. And it's just, it's really cool. I, <laughs> the ending is so cool. Like, I love the way that that story ends. So ch check that out. And also bonus, if you listen to it on Audible, uh, Jay Carnes reads it and he does a good job. He goes a little bit big in some of the emotions. Um, but I guess I guess the tension in the story kind of um, necessitates that. But Jay Carnes is an actor. He's appeared in a bunch of stuff, but I know him best from The Shield. He was a Dutch Wagenbach, um, and he's he's really good at reading. <laughs> so that's all the housekeeping and everything that I have uh, here. I'll also put an, a link to that short story collection on the show notes of this episode. So let's dive into the Rip Van Winkle caper. Um, I'll go ahead and read a plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Of course, at this point, I'm going to start spoiling the hell out of this episode. So every, like, spoilers are fair game for this episode of The Twilight Zone and, uh, you know, previous episodes as well. So uh, be warned, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, um... DVD, Blu-ray, everywhere. It's you, it's very accessible. So check it out, Riffin Winkle Caper, and here is the plot summary. Spoilers on. Four criminals commit a daring train robbery, netting them a large fortune in gold. The ingenious plot was masterminded by Farwell, the ringleader. To escape the law with their booty, the criminals agree to follow Farwell's scheme of being placed in suspended animation, so when they wake from their gas chambers a hundred years in the future, they can walk away with wealth, wealth and freedom. The plan goes according according to Farwell's schedule, and the men quickly find themselves in 2061. A crack in the glass of the airtight case allowed the experimental gas to escape, taking the life of one of the troop uh, during the past century. While Farwell ponders what kind of world awaits him, DeCruz starts getting greedy. In a deliberate attempt to eliminate his business partners, DeCruz murders Brooks. As Farwell and DeCruz walk along the highway, carrying heavy knapsacks filled with gold, the heat from the sun takes its toll. Farwell, desperate for survival, starts trading his bars of gold for the purchase of water in DeCruz's canteen. After a number of exchanges, the price begins to go up. 
Out of desperation, Farwell murders De Cruz. Alone along the highway, Farwell uh, continues his trek as the lone survivor, eventually collapsing from exhaustion. An elderly couple in their hovercraft arrive and find Farwell, offering gold in exchange for water. Before any rescue can be made, he dies from exhaustion. The couple are puzzled by the stranger who died clutching his bar of gold as if it were valuable. Since it was discovered how to manufacture gold, the mineral the mineral has been considered valueless. Okay, so uh, this episode stars Simon Oakland as DeCruz. Uh, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. The next we'll see of him is in Season 4, Episode 2, The 30 Fathom Grave. And he was also, this is this kind of blew my mind, I guess, uh, the coincidence of it at least. He was the doctor in Psycho. And it's funny because I just referenced his role in particular in the last episode of the podcast about a hundred yards over the rim. Um, that was just kind of a cool little coincidence. Uh, Simon Oakland also appeared in one episode of the outer limits in 1964 titled second chance co-starring as Farwell is Oscar Beregi. Um, this is his first of three twilight zones. The next we'll see of him is season three's death's head revisited. Uh, that's an episode that I'm really, um, eager to get to cause I've caught wind of what it's about and I'm very curious, uh, very curious to see it. It sounds, sounds like a very in, uh, deep and intense episode. Uh, Oscar Beregi was also in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1959, titled Message from Clara. Once again, One Step Beyond, I've said before, is available on Amazon Prime if you want to check that out. Uh, playing Brooks in this episode is Lou Gallo. This is his second of three Twilight Zones. Uh, the first we saw of him was in The Hitchhiker. He played the mechanic at the beginning of the episode. And the next we'll see of him is On Thursday We Leave for Home, which is Season 4, Episode 16. And, uh, as Irby is John Mitchum. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. The next is season five's Mr. Garrity and the Graves. He also appeared in one episode of Rod Serling's The Loner in 1965 titled Westward the Shoemaker. And here's where it kind of gets somewhat interesting, I guess. Um, he was also in four episodes of science fiction theater, including Stranger in the Desert, which is the episode that I'm going to be, uh, reviewing uh this week on the podcast i just thought that was a really cool coincidence that that just happened to line up here um also the fact that the episode of science fiction theater is stranger in the desert um and uh that's uh, that title alone evokes interesting parallels uh to this episode of the twilight zone rounding or uh Next up in the cast list <laughs> is uh, Wallace Rooney as George. This is his first of three Twilight Zones. Next is Young Man's Fancy, which is in season three, episode 34. He also played Bishop Michael in the movie The Exorcist. And rounding out the cast is Shirley O'Hara as George's wife. This is his first, this is her first of two Twilight Zones. Next is, uh, on Thursday we leave for home, which she is going to be in along with, uh, Leo Gallo, of course. And uh, she also appeared in two episodes of The Outer Limits, 1963's The Human Factor and 1964's Expanding Human. And she also played a secretary in the movie Rocky. Writer for this episode was Rod Serling and director was Justice Addis. This is his second of three Twilight Zones. Uh, the first was uh, The Odyssey of Flight 33 and we'll round out his uh, direction of the Twilight Zone with uh, season four, episode 10, No Time Like the Past. 
Okay, so before I get into my actual review, um, what I knew beforehand since the whole concept of this podcast is that I'm watching the show for the first time. Um, so what I knew before going into the Rip Van Winkle caper, um, I had no idea what to expect. Um, I just knew that, and this is just from Googling because it's been so long uh, since I read Rip, Rip Van Winkle, but I just knew that that story was about a man who fell asleep for 20 years and uh i just kind of assumed that this episode was about someone using some kind of time travel for personal gain um i had no idea that it was going to involve suspended animation and all that so uh i i wasn't clever enough to think of that <laughs> um other like instead my boring mind immediately thought thought that it was going to be about some kind of money scheme where thieves can transport money back in time so that in their present, there's like a ton of interest accrued <laughs> in their bank account. Um, which man, that would be such a cool, that would, that would be a cool, uh, racket to, to do, um, if it was possible. So <laughs> that's what I thought, that's what I, uh, my assumptions going into the episode. So let's get into my actual full review of the Rip Van Winkle caper. Which, by the way, I'm so proud of myself that I've been able to say that without flubbing it so hard like I did last time. So hopefully I can keep that up. So the episode opens with this wide shot on a moving truck. Uh, it says Jones Van and Storage Company. Um, as mentioned in last episode, it's the same truck that was used in 100 Yards Over the Rim since those uh, episodes were um, filmed either back-to-back -back or concurrently. I assume it's back-to-back. -back, but anyway... Um, and again, as I said in the last episode, I feel like these two episodes, I, I like the idea of these two episodes existing in the same universe. And it's just interesting that this, that these two episodes are back to back, um, in the air airing order because they are not necessarily, they're not thematically that similar, but they do have like a hundred yards over the rim is a guy, uh, wandering, a guy from the past wandering into the present. Um, and using like saving his family and everything. And then the Rip Van Winkle caper is guys in the present moving into the future and, uh, f like dying, uh, as a result of their greed. So anyway, I like the setup of this episode. Like, I like that it starts right after a heist. It brings you right into the, right into the story without, without, needing to showcase like all the fluff of the action and everything. And it like, it's kind of minimalistic in that sense because we don't know the context until they tell us what the context is. But the details that we get through the dialogue paint a pretty vivid picture of what happened and it's vivid enough. And it's not like the, um, the way that the details come out is staggered enough. Like there's one scene where DeCruz is talking about it and kind of in celebration. And then later it's, uh, before they go into the, caskets or the suspended animation and uh, animation stuff they talk about more details of it um so that like that staggering of it is really interesting like kind of world building and, and plot development that we get that backstory but it doesn't feel like it's exposition or it doesn't feel like it's just catching us up it just feels like we're in this world with these characters and we are being um uh included in their kind of private um caper um their private uh um crime and so it's revealed that they made off with one million dollars in gold bullion and farwell kind of hints at a bigger store a bigger score and like that, that's the impression that i got but he's talking about how uh today we are we've we've got the we've got the money 
but tomorrow we're going to live like Midas. Uh, he, he references something else that I couldn't, uh, I, I forgot to Google it and everything, but I, I, he says like tomorrow we wake up in a land of something in Midas. I get the Midas thing, like everything they touch turns to gold, but I don't know what the other uh, one is, but anyway, not a complaint or anything. I just, I just what didn't catch what it was. So it's revealed they robbed a train and they're putting to, they're putting the gold in the cave while DeCruz is sent to destroy the vehicles. And Farwell says it's one thing to rob a train, but another to remain free and spend it. And that's when he kind of gets clues in the other guys to the, to the rest of their, their, um, plan. And he references it that it's a piece of ultimate ingenuity. Um, he's kind of, Farwell's got kind of a big head about it. Um, and that's when he says that they're going to be placed in suspended animation. And in my notes, I have, they're going to be placed in suspended animation. That is a much more compelling story than anything that I could have come up with. So I was, I was on board with this. I was very interested and thought that it was a very unique premise for the Twilight Zone. So, De Cruz, upon learning about this, has some reservations, and he asks how long they're going to be in suspended animation, to which Farwell says, I don't know, approximately a hundred years. And that is where, like, as, as interested as I was in the plot, this is where it starts to kind of not lose me, but it kind of makes me feel like, I, I don't know if I would do that. <laughs> like, um, like screw that. Like it's such a bizarre premise for a heist. Really. Um, it's interesting and compelling. I will, I will give this episode that, but the logic behind it is just so far out there that it's almost too much for me to take. Like, I don't know, like none of them mind being encased in, in the glass caskets for a hundred years. And that's on the surface. That's kind of just nuts to me. But also I can kind of get it. Like if they're career criminals and like they don't have families or anything. And I'm sure like it's not a stretch to think like, okay, that's, they don't need, they don't, uh, they don't have baggage that they'll be leaving behind or anything. Like that's not a stretch to think that. But just the idea alone of, like waiting for the heat to die down on a big take, but <laughs> waiting out the heat dying down is taking a hundred years. Like it's funny. Cause like they don't consider the, uh, the kind of variables at play. Like a hundred years is a long time. Like society itself is going to be drastically different and they're going to have to reacclimate to a new society, um, but they don't consider that. And maybe that plays into kind of the greed aspect of the story, like the greed theme of the story. But I just thought that on the surface, the actual plot, the logic of it didn't, uh, didn't track as well with me as, uh, as other episodes have. So at this point we get Serling's opening narration, which I'll play a clip from. Um, so here's Serling's opening narration. Introducing four experts in the questionable art of crime. Mr. Farwell, expert on noxious gases, former professor with a doctorate in both chemistry and physics. Mr. Irby, expert in mechanical engineering. Mr. Brooks, expert in the use of firearms and other weaponry. And Mr. DeCruz, expert in demolition and various forms of destruction. The time is now, and the place is a mountain cave in Death Valley, USA. In just a moment, these four men will utilize the services of a truck placed in Cosmoly, loaded with a hot heist, cooled off by a century of sleep, and then take a drive into the Twilight Zone. 
So he introduces us to the four men, Mr. Farwell, Mr. Irby, Mr. Brooks, and Mr. DeCruz. Um, each one has a different, um, a different specialty in, in their criminal empire and everything. Um, and I like that. It gives some individual individuality to the characters and like, it's kind of superflu- superfluous information because it doesn't really come into play. Like it just gives us context for why Mr. Farwell is, um, kind of the leader and why he is the one who has uh, put together this scheme. Cause he's the one that's all about no- noxious gases. And also, um, before that, when, when DeCruz is having his reservations about the plan, he does mention, or they do mention, like, uh, I think it's Brooks mentions that, like, oh, I'm following, I'm going to believe Mr. Farwell here. I'm going to believe Farwell because, you know, he's the one that masterminded this whole thing. He's the one that concocted the gas that made uh, the take so much easier because we had, I think, the phrasing. I really like Brooks in this episode, like, I believe he's the one that says this, but he says something like, we just had to step over a bunch of unconscious bodies like, uh, and pick the gold like cotton candy. Um, very colorful, colorful dialogue and, and uh, a good character. Like, it's kind of sad that we don't get more of him in this episode. So after the narration, Farwell is giving his instructions for the suspended animation. And it goes through, like, it's brief, but it's kind of just maybe a little cumbersome because it's just kind of just delivering us information about the mechanics of uh, what they're doing. But he talks about they need to confirm that the airlocks are closed. They need to count to 10 and then press a button for the gas to come through. It's pretty straightforward. I I like it. Um, It's not a confusing kind of thing or a confusing plot device. It's just a straightforward plot uh, scenario that I don't think we really needed like the step-by-step instructions, but Oh, well, uh, I do like the, the effect of it, like the gas going into the, going into the caskets. And then as Farwell's words kind of get sleepy and repetitive, like he says something like, I'll see you in the next century. I'll see you in the next century. Um, it's, it's kind of a nice touch to it and a good way to kind of transition us into a hundred years in the future. (laughs) So uh, the fades to black and then comes back to a new world that uh, looks exactly the same. Um, so only three of them wake up first. Irby is, uh, you know, he's a little out of it, um, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, DeCruz thinks that instantly thinks that they haven't aged because they're, he, they have no beards or no like nail, like their finger and toenails haven't grown, <laughs> which it's kind of funny to me. Cause it's like, that's the immediate like reaction. And like, that makes sense. Like, you know, that, that makes sense. But like, you gotta, like, if, if that's the first thing that he thought, like, um, why not bring that up earlier before, (laughs) before, uh, going into it? Because I would have thought like, man, that like, I don't know. I have a weird thing about nails. First of all, I just have like just a weird thing. I think it stems from like those old, um, um, Guinness Book of World Records books that would come out every year. Like, uh, like I'd look at them and see like the person with like the longest finger and toenails and the way that they're so long that they curl up. I just, that just, I, I don't, I don't like that. So anyway, the thought that like Dick Cruz went to sleep in the, in the little glass casket thing, thinking that his hair and nails would grow. Like I put myself in that position and thought like I would be freaked out because I would just think that while I'm sleeping, my nails are just getting pressed up against the glass and I'm cringing so hard just saying that. Um, But Farwell explains that 
um, by going into suspended animation, all their bodily functioning stopped, uh, which is pretty cool. Like it, it's good. It doesn't need any um, extraneous like scientific explanation or anything. I, I buy that entirely. Um, and it's a good way to kind of bring us into the next scene really. So they leave the cage and they real or not cage, but they leave the cave and they realize like, uh, DeCruz mentions that like nothing has changed outside the cave, but like it's all desert, desert and mountains. So I wouldn't expect it to change in 20 and, or I'm sorry, in a hundred years, but DeCruz does mention that the road is still there. And like, so that makes sense that he would be, that he would assume that, you know, like the road itself would have changed in a hundred years, but the landscape wouldn't. So that's when they finally realize, like, oh, wait, we, there were four of us and only three of us woke up. So let's go check on Irby. Um, so they go back and, like, immediately I was like, oh, he's dead. Like, he's he died. Something went wrong. Um, and that's what happened. Like, the a rock fell from the cave and crashed the glass of his of his uh, casket. And they just find his skeleton. And that's the proof that they need that it's been 100 years, that 100 years have passed. And that's a clever way to use that. So it is 2061. And also, I'll mention this in the trivia, but that's very similar to something in Planet of the Apes as well, which is pretty cool. So... Again, like this premise is just so silly to me. <laughs> like these men stole money and went to sleep for a hundred years so that he would die down. And again, I just don't think that that logic really tracks in my mind that much. Like they have to know that the world would be, will be completely changed in a hundred years. So they would have to readjust to a future society, but they have such a narrow viewpoint of their plan because they're just, they're just completely focused on, um, the gold and everything. Um, I kind of wish that the, well, I, it does come kind of come back to bite them in the ass because they, uh, are as, as Serling says in his closing narration, they're, um, pursuing an idol, uh, in the sand that ultimately doesn't mean anything. <laughs> um, but I do like Farwell's kind of the way that he kind of romanticizes their adventure. Like he says, for the first time in the history of men, we have taken a century and put it in our hip pocket. Um, you know, I'm actually going to play a clip of, of his monologue here about what they're going to do. So here's a clip of Farwell kind of um, explaining the situation that they have found themselves in. Why is it, Mr. De Cruz, that greedy men are the most dreamless, the least imaginative, the stupid? Now you listen to me, Farwell. For the first time in the history of men, we have taken a censure and put it in our hip pocket. We've taken a lease on life and outlived our stay. We've had our cake, but we're still going to eat it. It's quite an adventure out there, Mr. De Cruz. Though you're a little insensitive to it, that's quite an adventure. It's a world we've never seen before. A brand new, exciting world that we are going to walk through. I wonder what kind of a world. And I just find Farwell as a very interesting kind of dreamer. Like this monologue about the future made me eager for them to reach the city. Um, and made me eager for them to actually make it, even though they're kind of, you know, they're criminals and everything. Um, it's a good way to kind of put us in the mindset of these characters and like the adventure that they should have or would have had if they didn't have their greed and hubris to contend with. Um, so the scene ends with Farwell saying they're going to walk into a new world. And like he questions, what kind of world is it going to be? And that made me think that they would reach the city. And 
that kind of made it a little um, disappointing. Well, I don't even know know if I'd say disappointing because I like the way that the episode turned out. But I was kind of a little surprised that we never did that. I would have liked to have seen them make it to the city and and do that. And that like. I don't know. In that sense, I think this premise could be an interesting one to revisit in the new series, um, but kind of changed it a little bit. So, and granted, like, I know not every episode is going to be revisited and I want the new, the new series, the new season of the new series to do unique things in their own right. But I think that this premise could be an interesting one. Um, so like, (laughs) <laughs> I have this written out as if it's a Serling narration, but it's, I'm not going to try to imitate Serling because I, I just can't. So um, just imagine this this plot in a new, a new season of the Twilight Zone. So imagine, if you will, <laughs> a group of criminals who travel into the future to avoid capture. They have the funds to create a new life for themselves in this futuristic society. Now imagine that this, the society that they find themselves in is like this utopia. Like they've... like the world has found, or at least the country has found ways to end crime, poverty, hunger, everything. Everyone is prospering. Everyone's in like a good place, but the criminals can't acclimate to the new world because they are products of a time where hate and jealousy reigned. Empathy is a desert and whomever speaks loudest is the most powerful or most heard person, uh, the most heard voice. And so like, I could see like that, being like they could either so like I could see that type of episode ending with them either destroying themselves or if the show wants to go really cynical like destroying the new society that they find themselves in I think that would be a compelling storyline for the new series um and maybe they'll do something like that I don't know so back to the actual episode um the gold is loaded up in the truck to cruise uh, so DeCruz asks Brooks to drive while he stays in back to kind of guard the gold. And Brooks uh, doesn't trust him. And uh, like Brooks is great in this episode. And it's sad that we're going to see him go here in a second. But he says, I wouldn't trust you with gold if it was if it was filling in your own mother's tooth. And it's just such a he's got such a cadence to him, such a such a smirk on his face that it's like he's like he's playing this career criminal in the most uh, satisfactory way that he can. Um, so De Cruz, uh, De Cruz ends up kind of taking off with the truck and the gold. And I thought that he was escaping. Like, I really thought that he was going to escape and leave with it. But instead, he runs down Brooks, um, effectively killing him, I guess. Like, the way that it's shown in it is, like, this is, this is probably my biggest issue I have with the episode is that this scene doesn't make sense to me. And I'm going to try to work through it here on the podcast. So, he tried to run down Brooks. We see Brooks dodge the, or, or it looks like maybe it looks kind of like he's hit by it, but it's, it's kind of confusing. Cause it's like, he dives out of the way. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting display of violence in that regard, because even though he jumps out of the way, he's still killed apparently. Um, and it's just interesting that they were able to kind of get away with that on network TV in 1961. So like that alone, that's fine. Okay, DeCruz running down Brooks to kill him. That's that makes sense. I understand that. But then he drives the truck off of a cliff. And I don't understand that at all. Like he like he tells Farwell that Mr. Brooks had an accident. And I was just really confused by that because 
He runs down Brooks, so Brooks is killed. I understand that. That tracks. But then he drives the truck off the cliff, and I don't see the meaning behind that at all. Like, it's not like Farwell was in the cave and didn't see it. Like, he was outside and even yelled at Brooks to get out of the way. It's just very bizarre. I, I don't understand it. So, Brooks and Farwell are standing over the, the cliff where, uh, where Farwell, or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, DeCruz and Farwell are standing over uh, on the edge of the little, like, cliff or whatever you want to call it, uh, looking down at the truck that's been destroyed now. And, uh, DeCruz says, well, we'll do it my way now. We'll pack as much as we can into two knapsacks and hit the road. So, I don't know. So my best guess is that DeCruz, killed Brooks just because he didn't trust him. And now that they're only two men, they wouldn't have trusted each other to have one sit in the back of the truck with the gold while the other drives. And I guess that makes sense because the man in the back could just hop out with more than his share of the gold theoretically. But I don't know. It just, I just feel like I can't get past the fact that DeCruz just sabotaged their only means of transportation (laughs) and they're in the middle of the desert. Like it's just, it's so I, I I feel like it. There's a narrative leap there, a logical leap there that I just couldn't connect to, and it kind of it didn't it didn't detract too much from the episode from uh, for me. But like when I was rewatching, I was like, "What is he doing? Like, what's the deal here?" Um, and then I kind of started making um, kind of th- thinking more about it, and I thought, "Well, maybe it's a maybe it's a long con. Like, DeCruz for some reason knows that Farwell will come to depend on him." in their travels if they have, if they're, if they're forced to make it on foot. Um, and I kind of like that, but I don't think there's enough in the episode to really, uh, uh, to really add credence to that theory. I think maybe I'm just making excuses for the story, (laughs) for the storytelling, but uh, anyway, I'll come back to that. I think here in a bit, but DeCruz and Farwell are walking through the desert now. And, uh, this whole dynamic just reminds me pretty vaguely of I shot an arrow into the air from season one. Like these people have limited water and it's the episode is about people's true natures emerging and like their survival instincts and whatnot. Um, and I, and I like that. I, I like that a lot. The way that it kind of mirrors, I shot an arrow into the air. So they notice that there hasn't been a single car and far, uh, Farwell, um, well, first of all, like before Farwell says like, what if they dropped a bomb? I kind of thought like what, like it would be so cool if like the, the kind of twist is that the planet was either evacuated, like humanity left the planet to colonize somewhere else or whatever. Um, or if there was an extinction level event, like a nuclear Holocaust or whatever. And then Farwell kind of read my mind and said, what if they, what if there was a war and what if they dropped a bomb? And, in that moment, I thought it would be so crazy if like, as they get closer to the city, they just like, you just see like radiation sickness and like radiation burns covering their, their bodies. And then they die. Um, that would have been cool, but I don't know how it would have fit in the story. But immediately after that, DeCruz points out planes in the sky. <laughs> so he's like, we're going to make it, buddy. We're going to, we're going to do it. Um, and I kind of wonder here, and I have no way I, I haven't looked into it or anything, but I kind of wonder there's a similar scene in uh, the movie 28 Days Later, and I kind of wonder if the, that movie was paying homage to this episode. Um, maybe I'll dig a little bit deeper in that, because I really love 28 Days Later. Um, so, Farwell reaches for his water and finds that his canteen is gone, and that's when DeCruz um, <laughs> decides to become a... Uh, entrepreneur, I guess. And he starts selling his water to Farwell. One drink, one bar of gold. 
Um, that's the going rate today. We'll see what the market's like later. Um, and I, I love that. DeCruz is so just cold and heartless. Um, and it, I, like, it just demonstrates like there are no, there's no honor among thieves. And I, I just love that piece of the story. Um, but here, like, if it, if this were a long con, um, like, I wish, I, I think it could have been interesting to see, like, a scene where DeCruz, like, dumps Farwell's, Farwell's canteen so that he comes to depend on DeCruz, uh, leading to Farwell's downfall. Like, I kind of wish that there was something there. If, it was intended to be a long con. I think that that's just a read on the, on the episode that I'm having here. So after the deal is struck that it's one bar for each drink of the canteen, uh, we get a montage of DeCruz selling the water to Farwell. They're traveling. And so at this moment, I kind of thought, uh, at this moment, I, I thought like, okay, I really hope that we get to see the Twilight Zone's 2016 or 2061 ver- vision of the future. Like I, I wanted to, I wanted them to make it into the city and I wanted there to be some interesting stuff in the city and everything. But we get a montage of DeCruz selling the water and like as they're going, like all I kept thinking was a scene in um in The Simpsons in the Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie episode, uh where <laughs> they're watching uh Itchy and Itchy and Scratchy and uh Poochie is there and they run in like they're like in the cartoon within The Simpsons, they're traveling to the fireworks factory. And then Poochie derails their their quest to the fireworks factory and it's just a very flat, empty episode. Um that's just introducing Poochie. And so Millhouse says, like, when are they gonna get to the fireworks factory? And that's the kind of thought that I had when I saw the montage of DeCruz selling the water to Farwell as they're walking through the desert. Cause I just wanted them to get to 2061 and see what kind of world there was. Um, so we still see that there's still no vehicles or any sign of civilization. And we get another break where Farwell is, is resting and it, it's showing that he is very much getting more and more exhausted. And I kind of wondered here and like, I kind of, I really wish – part of me really wishes that the episode would have taken this turn, but I kind of started to wonder if maybe Farwell was conning DeCruz um, for the water, like conning him to carry more weight so that DeCruz would pass out or die from exhaustion and then Farwell could make off with all the gold. Um, like I would have really liked that. Like it would have made for an interesting fable for the story or an interesting morality tale. Um, but – uh, that's not what we got. So I can't really complain. <laughs> um, so DeCruz tells him like, okay, well the going rate for, for water now is that I'm now going to charge you two bars of gold for one swallow of water. And so Farwell's like, okay, but then he just beats DeCruz to death with a gold bar. And I, I like that a lot. I thought that was, that was a cool like comeuppance for DeCruz cause he was so cold and just so just, uh, opportunistic and everything. Um, and he was just like, like I said, there's no honor among thieves and, uh, DeCruz got his just desserts for, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more so like, maybe it's a little, maybe it's not a proportionate response for, uh, selling water for, a uh, a gold bar. So we get a close up of Farwell kind of laughing and crying in hysteria, in hysteria, um, after killing DeCruz. And that reminds me again of I shot an arrow into the air. Like when, um, I can't remember the character, uh, when, when the character kind of sees like where he is and everything, he starts laughing maniacally and, uh, 
that it reminded me here. Like there was like Farwell laughing and crying after killing De Cruz is kind of an interesting echo of that shot or that scene. And I shot an arrow into the air. So uh, now it's just Farwell walking alone. And it's interesting. He's pursuing this dream world, this dream life that he's never going to attain. And it's just an interesting piece of imagery where he's just wandering and he even drops one of the gold bars and then just continues on because he sees that. I don't know if it's necessarily that he sees that what was once important isn't as important as his life and livelihood. Um, or if it was just like, uh, I'm too exhausted. I don't know if it was my read of it is, I don't know if it was him recognizing that the gold is a fool's errand, or if he was just recognizing that he's just too exhausted to even pick up the thing that he's idolizing so much and worked so hard for, uh, worked so hard to steal at least. Um, so yeah, he passes out and he wakes up to a man standing over him. And I thought that it was interesting because we, the stranger who ends up being George, um, his face and upper body are kind of obstructed and we don't like see him until after Farwell dies. So I thought that was interesting. It's kind of an interesting kind of visual technique to kind of show us that because it kind of seems like it's giving the impression that maybe he's a mirage. Maybe he is someone who doesn't exist. And maybe this whole like last scene, um, with George in the, uh, forbidden planet, hovercraft uh maybe that's maybe that's like the last vision that farwell has before he actually dies like maybe he's just realizing that the gold doesn't exist um i don't think there's anything in the narrative or in the in the episode to kind of add credence to that theory or anything but i kind of think that that uh is a fun little read on it um kind of fun little headcanon for you so um i'll t- i'll go ahead and play a clip of farwell um, offering the gold to George. Gold. It's real gold. You can have it. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. So George picks up the gold and goes back to the hovercraft. And that's where we get our Twilight Zone ending where he is... uh, uh, he's talking about the guy that he just watched die and he's like, that's funny. He was, you know, he was, uh, he was offering me this gold as if it meant anything. And then, uh, George's wife is just like, uh, you know, wasn't gold worth money like back in the day. And he's like, yeah, like a hundred years ago. And then he just drops the gold, um, saying like before we found a way to manufacture it and then they leave. Um, I like that. I like that kind of twist it's a tragic and ironic twist and it's another example of the twilight zone giving um people who are evildoers or not kind people like people who are narcissistic and um criminals they're just desserts so they're comeuppance and everything i i like that as a narrative technique and it's really fun here um and kind of a the episode itself is kind of light uh, in terms of um uh, content, I guess, but the message is, is pretty clear and and interesting. Um, I do want to mention, this is such a stupid thing, but, uh, the guy who happens upon Farwell is named George and they're in the future. And I kind of like my personal headcanon for this episode is that this is George Jetson. And this episode of the twilight zone is in the same universe as the Jetsons. Um, yeah, that's just my own thing. I haven't seen the Jetsons, like at least, 
uh not in a long time but i do want to check it out it's on boomerang um like 4.99 a month uh to get it so i might maybe i'll maybe i'll splurge and watch that for a month or whatever but anyway um that kind of connection like is it's not like it's not like the show was trying to do that or trying to make like by naming the character george it was a reference to george jetson that's not the case because the jetsons wouldn't premiere for another year or two after that so we get Serling's closing narration, which I'll go ahead and play here. The last of four Rip Van Winkles who all died precisely the way they lived, chasing an idol across the sand to wind up bleached dry in the hot sun as so much desert flotsam, worthless as the gold bullion they built a shrine to. Tonight's lesson in the Twilight Zone. And I like this closing narration because he talks about how they're, how these men died the way they lived and chasing an idol across the sand that was ultimately um, meaningless. It's just, it's a good button on the episode. It's a good kind of ironic twist for this, uh, for this episode of the Twilight Zone. And I guess, I mean, that's really my review. That's all I've got to say about it. Um, it's a good episode. It's fun. It's fine. Like it's, it's, it's okay. Even though it has a couple hiccups early on, like I kind of like the morality tale at play. Like it's about greed and uh, people overcome with greed and, and losing sight of uh, what's important, like freaking water and um, uh, maybe not using greed to destroy your one method of transportation. So you have to walk through the desert uh, 28 miles, but yeah, it's a solid episode. I, I enjoyed it. So trivia for this episode of the twilight zone, um, the futuristic car, uh, that the couple have, um, at the end is, uh, according to trivia, it's a leftover prop from the 1956 film forbidden planet. Uh, it's the, I believe it's the hovercraft that, uh, uh, the robot drives in it. Um, it's been a while since I've seen forbidden planet. So, um, yeah. So as I mentioned in the review, um, Irby dying um, as a result of the rock falling on his uh, chamber. It's uh, it's reminiscent of the scene in Planet of the Apes. Um, so in Planet of the Apes, uh, four astronauts are uh, awakened from their stasis pod, and they are, are awakened, but only three of them like get up, um, <laughs> and they find that their fellow astronaut. Um, the, the woman astronaut on it, uh, Stuart, um, has died because there was a malfunction, malfunction that caused the air in the pod to leak. And, uh, it's interesting because, um, Serling wrote, uh, at least partially or, or early drafts of the, of the script of Planet of the Apes. So I wonder if that was something that he input into it. Um, and then rounding out trivia, uh, $1 million in gold in 1961 would weigh, um, 1,760 pounds, which, uh, is interesting. Uh, like that just also, that just makes me wonder, like, why, why did the cruise destroy the, the truck? Like, man, I, it's that it kind of bothers me. Um, and why do they need to have someone in back to guard it? Well, I mean, I guess since it is a lot of gold, but like, if they're just traveling through the desert, I mean, just like, like, it's not like it's going to blow out of it because they're gold it's gold. Like it's weighs a lot. So I don't know. That's just something that I just couldn't really reconcile in the episode. But again, it's a, it's a fine episode. It's, it's okay. 
Um, so as I've been doing recently, I'm going to go ahead and round out this episode of the podcast with a bonus review of an episode of Science Fiction Theater. So this episode of Science Fiction Theater is Season 1, Episode 6, titled Stranger in the Desert. Uh, it originally aired on May 7th, 1955, and it is available in its entirety on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, so yeah, so... You should be hearing the theme music now. I think maybe I'll play it earlier. I don't know. Anyway, um, so as is customary with uh, science fiction theater, first of all, I'm not going to spoil the episode for you. So you can this will be a spoiler free review. And as custom as is customary for it, host Truman Bradley comes on on the screen in like his little laboratory set and kind of introduces the episode with something that's some kind of scientific a dialogue or experiment that pertains to the episode. And in this episode, it's pretty tame. It's just, he's talking about the atomic age that they live in. And he gives a history lesson about, uh, the, the Curies and the discovery of uranium. It's pretty brief and straightforward. So, and then he introduces us to the episode stranger in the desert. Um, it's interesting because stranger in the desert in the DVD that I have, I have the complete series DVD. It's referred to as strangers in the desert. Um, but the actual episode title is titled stranger in the desert. Um, and synopsis for this episode, according to IMDb is two uranium prospectors find a rich deposit in a botanist. The botanist has no interest in riches, but may have an unworldly motive instead. This episode of Science Fiction Theater was directed by Henry S. Kessler and written by Curtis Kenyon and Robert M. Fresco uh, from a story by producer Ivan Tours. Um, this episode stars Marshall Thompson as Gil. He appeared in uh, Rod Serling's U.S. Steel Hour episode titled The Rack. And he was also he ap- would appear in seven episodes of Science Fiction Theater. Co-starring as Bud is Gene Evans. He appeared in a ni- in a 1972 episode of The Sixth Sense, which was a show that was hosted by Rod Serling. Um, and apparently, they repurposed some of the episodes to and reintroduced them or, or added them to the run of Night Gallery um, uh, to kind of pad out Night Gallery's syndication package, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, also, that episode that he was in um, in 1972 just. At, pertaining to no one uh, on this podcast, it also featured um, a role portrayed by Dennis Dugan, who would go on to subject the world with uh, by directing to the pain of uh, late Adam Sandler, like crappy Adam Sandler movies. He directed several of them, um, and I hate those movies. I, I Adam Sandler sucks. I just, I don't know. Anyway, this was his, this was, uh, Gene Evans' only episode of the, of, of science fiction theater. Uh, rounding out the cast is Lowell Gilmore as Ballard. He was in, um, Mr. Finchley versus the bomb, which was an episode of the Kaiser aluminum hour written by Rod Serling in 1956. And he would appear in a total of two science fiction theater episodes. Now, John Mitchum, also appears briefly in this episode of science fiction theater as the sheriff. Um, so that's an interesting connection there. So, uh, yeah. So my spoiler free review of stranger in the desert is, uh, it was interesting. It was fine. I like the concept, uh, or I thought it was an interesting concept of 
uranium prospectors. Um, like it's introduced that these two men are traveling or are going into the desert to, to mine for uranium. Um, and the sheriff stops them and says that, well, you know, seven uranium prospectors have been killed in the desert recently. So, you know, be careful. And I kind of wondered if it was supposed to be like radiation poisoning that, that they came in contact with radiation and they were, they died because of it. But no, uh, I don't, I don't feel bad spoiling this cause it's not really a spoiler. It's really just, um, like, it's just legit. Like, Oh, people are killing each other for these uraniums, uh, the uranium deposits that people are prospecting for. Um, and it's just to kind of illustrate just how profitable it is and how sought after it is. So that's interesting. So the two men stumble upon a radioactive Eagle. Um, and I found that kind of interesting. Like this whole episode was interesting to me because having just watched Chernobyl on HBO, uh, the whole, the kind of flippant attitude with these men wandering around looking for radioactive material with no, like no protective gear whatsoever, um, is kind of funny to me and horrifying. <laughs> like the eagle that they find is going to die, but these men are going to seek out the uranium that has killed the eagle. And then like, like that's the setup of it. And then they, like they, they're even like, Hey, let's bring the eagle with us for luck. And I'm like, this rate, this eagle's radioactive. Like, Oh my God, like stop. Um, it's just, it, it was funny to me and just kind of a little bit off putting in a, in a kind of cheeky way. Um, but the kind of twist here, the, the interesting thing is that the eagle, uh, the next day, the eagle that they have captured and brought with them, uh, is okay. Like the radiation is cleared and there's no, there's no sign of radiation. And, uh, that's kind of the introduction of a mystery element to the, to the episode. So, um, yeah, so they, they decide that the eagle will lead them to the uranium. So they, they free the eagle and then follow, follow it. And that's when they find, they come upon a dark spot of radioactivity. And just again, it's so bizarre. They're just standing on top of this black circle and they're like, Oh, hey, you know, the Geiger counter is going off the charts. We're, we're rich. Um, why is this clump of hair coming out of my head? Um, not really, but like this episode does nothing to show the horrors of radiation sickness or anything except for an eagle. Um, it's just so bizarre and weird. Um, it just, it, I don't know. It really, it makes me uncomfortable because, Chernobyl is so fresh in my mind, the, the miniseries, and it's just like its depiction of like radiation burns is just so horrific. And like, seriously, watch Chernobyl. It's, it's incredible. I think Tiny and I are going to review it on Obsessive Viewer, um, here in the next week or so. Um, so near the radioactive circle that they find, they find this shack, uh, like this, or it's like, a, it's more like a, uh, well, I guess Shaq is the closest thing. So they suspect that the person living there is the person that's committing these murders of uranium prospectors. So naturally they go to the, <laughs> go to the residents to bargain with them. Like, Hey, you know, don't murder us. We'll give you a cut of the claim that we have on this uranium. Um, just don't murder us and everything. Um, and it's funny cause they, they bust into this dude's house and he's just sitting there gardening and like he's, he's putting together plants and he's very jovial and, and very cool with these guys just busting into his shack. Um, and it, it's, it, that was funny to me. So he introduces himself. His name's Ballard. He collects plants and he doesn't see the purpose of prospecting for uranium or anything. Um, and it's, it's interesting cause the guys don't believe him. Like they think like, okay, he's, he's conning them. He's, he's, you know, he's going to murder them or try to murder them. So Bud goes into town to file the claim while, uh, Gil is left to babysit Ballard. 
and we kind of get our act break where um, Gil goes back into the shack and Ballard says that the claim won't do Bud as much good as he thinks. And so this whole, this all happens in the first act of the, of the episode. And it's an interesting setup. Like is Ballard on the level? Is he a murderer? Is he insane? Um, what does he, what is, what does he know about the, the uranium in like near his land that the other guys don't know? So it's an interesting setup. And I, from here, I won't spoil what happens, but it, this episode becomes a, an interesting suspense piece, and I was really digging it. I really liked it. Uh, the script does a really good job of keeping us guessing about Ballard. Um, and then also, like, there's this theme of greed throughout this entire episode that it makes it feel like one of the more Twilight Zone precursor episodes that I have seen so far in science fiction theater. Like, Science fiction theater aired from 1955 to 1957, so it was well before uh, Serling started The Twilight Zone. But this is like an interesting, like prototypical Twilight Zone kind of premise. Like it has, like it has elements that Serling would go on to. Not to say Serling was influenced by this or anything, but just it's an interesting connection that it's similar uh, in tone to like a what. Twilight Zone would be so profitable doing or so would do so well and be so known for. And when the episode reveals whether or not Ballard is good or evil or a murderer or what have you, like I won't reveal what which side of the coin he falls on, but the remaining mystery of the character when that's revealed is still compelling enough to carry me through the rest of the episode. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, and I was really amazed by how similar this episode turned out to be to the Rip Van Winkle caper. Um, like really cool coincidence. Like there's some fighting between Gil and Bud about the, uh, the uranium and, and their profits and everything. So it's just, it's an interesting, like paranoid kind of thing. And it's an interesting counter to the Rip Van Winkle caper. And I'm just so tickled that I um, <laughs> just arbitrarily uh, paired these two episodes up because of the production order. And I just happened to be uh, paired these up. I thought it was cool. So anyway, uh, the episode ends on a very ambiguous and mysterious note and kind of, uh, just it 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 ends well like I, this might be of the six episodes i've reviewed this is my favorite episode by far um very cool and it makes me excited to to go into more of uh science fiction theater and everything and hopefully we get more interesting connections between science fiction theater and the twilight zone um and i think that'll do it for this episode of anthology um yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, like I, I hit that milestone and I was so happy and it just made me think like I've been a little bit more reflective on, on what this podcast is and, and, uh, how, how the podcast is performing and how much, Im- uh, how much enjoyment I get out of podcasting. And like I love doing this so much and I just want to just again, reiterate, I really appreciate everyone who listens, who, who writes in, who leaves reviews, who, um, and everyone who, who, uh, I've connected with because of this podcast. It's so, it's so great. I, I love doing this. And I just want to thank you guys again for showing your support and downloading the episodes, listening to the episodes, putting up with my voice and, uh, and, uh, you know, t- uh, reaching out and everything. So thank you guys. Um, I'm excited because we're, we're almost to the end of season two of the twilight zone. And I'm so excited to, uh, get to these episodes. Like I'm, I'm, I can't wait to talk about the silence next time. Like the silence, I I've, I've so much pent up opinions and thoughts about the silence that I can't wait to get 
I can't wait to art- articulate on a podcast. So I'm so excited for that. Next episode is going to be The Silence, and I'm going to pair that with episode seven of season one of Science Fiction Theater titled The Lost Heartbeat. And then in the meantime, um, let's see, this episode, when, uh, this episode will go up after my, uh, review of Point of Origin from the new series, the first season of the new series of The Twilight Zone. So next up in the bonus reviews is The Blue Scorpion with Chris O'Dowd. Um, I'm excited to talk about that. There's some interesting stuff in that episode. I feel like the season, season one of The Twilight Zone really finished, uh, finished uh, finished strong. <laughs> I don't know why I was dropping the D there. Um, that's what she said. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's stupid. So anyway, um, yeah, uh, the blue scorpion, I can't wait to talk about it. And I can't wait to talk about blurry man. Um, yeah, very excited for the next couple episodes of this podcast. And then after that, like I've said, I'm going to go right into black mirror. So yeah, check all that stuff out. Uh, let me know what you thought of Rip Van Winkle caper. And if you watched, um, stranger in the desert, let me know what you thought of that. And yeah, uh, thank you guys so much for listening and, uh, so much for, thank you guys so much for, uh, helping me reach that milestone that I'm being coy about revealing. <laughs> I don't know why it's not, it's, it's just an arbitrary number for the total numbers downloaded, but it's like, it's a pretty substantial number and it's blows my mind that people listen to this podcast. Um, I know that it's mostly just, you know, people that are interested in the subject matter, but the fact that I can retain an audience for this long with so many gaps in releasing episodes and everything is just, it's, uh, I really appreciate it and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time. And now here's a clip from a recent episode of tower junkies, a podcast exploring the work of Stephen King from obsessiveviewer.com. The characteristics of that character, um, are just don't I don't think they're conducive to a a leading reliable narrator like yeah. you said and and I I I would love to be proved wrong yeah <laughs> I'm definitely going to read the book and I'm curious as to how it's going to play out but uh I just foresee that it could be problematic sure yeah speaking as someone who is constantly proved wrong um I'm looking forward <laughs> to being proved wrong nice um yeah. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewers annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. 
And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.